Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. The pandemic led to a decline in the incarcerated population, and many states have been reevaluating the purpose of prisons. Today, where we live, Bill Keller, founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project, joins us to talk about his new book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Keller details how the United States prison population became so massive and what we can learn from how other countries treat and house people in prison. Keller writes, The American way of incarceration is a shameful waste of lives and money, feeding a pathological cycle of poverty, community dysfunction, crime, and hopelessness. His book explores the alternatives that could improve the U.S. prison system and help the formerly incarcerated lead productive lives. Now, we want to hear from you. Have you or a family member been incarcerated? Or do you have questions about the U.S. prison system? You can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Bill Keller joins us on Zoom, again, founding editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project. That's an independent nonprofit news organization that covers the U.S. criminal justice system. Bill's had a long career also with The New York Times and also received a Pulitzer in 1989 for his reporting. Bill, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Nancy. So when we think about the U.S. uh, and how it became a world leader in locking people up, uh, give us some broad strokes in your research. Sure. Um, one thing that's interesting about the mass, the phenomenon of mass incarceration is that it's relatively recent. For most of the 20th century, our incarceration rate was something like 100 people incarcerated for 100,000 population, which was a little high in the developed world, but not nearly as high as it became in the 70s. And in the 70s, we had the war on drugs, we had the white backlash against black empowerment, and we had lots of politicians who were very keen to exploit those phenomenons by fear-mongering campaigns. So it it went from 100 to more like 500 incarcerated people per 100,000 population. It's come down a little bit since then, but we still lead the world. We, We have twice as much, twice as high an incarceration rate as Iran and Russia. And you can go down the, the more developed countries, the, the, the less like us they look. We're, we're really an outlier in many respects. You also uh, detail the costs of what it means to incarcerate so many. And throughout the book, you're talking about the costs to someone's family and their communities, but also the financial costs. And it can vary uh, to house a prisoner uh, from one expert to the other, from 45000 all the way to $450,000. Why is there uh, such a, a difference there, Bill? The 45000 number comes from the, just the, the actual budgets at the federal and state and local level, what we actually pay to 
to cage people. Uh, it's more like $90 billion a year when you add in the pensions and health benefits for prison officers. But the, that much larger number is, is a notional one that was done by some researchers who tried to calculate the social cost of prison, everything from shortened life expectancies to loss of child support to loss of income to health impacts and mental health impacts. And they came up with a number that was 10 times the actual budget figure. I mentioned that you're the founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project and its focus on the criminal justice system. But why did you write this book now, Bill? I'd spent about five years immersed in the subject with some really good reporters and editors at the Marshall Project. And there's been a lot written about mass incarceration, the num- how the numbers got so big and how what an outlier we are in the, in the world but not very much written about what actually goes on in prisons and what we can do better. That's by design, the walls that were built to keep people in are also meant to keep nosy reporters and others out. So I'm not a scholar or an advocate. There are a lot of scholars who do excellent work on criminal justice. And there are a lot of advocacy groups like the Vera Institute and the Brennan Center and the Prison Policy Initiative that do advocacy work. I just wanted to do a journalistic kind of a primer on the history and context and life inside. When we think about the idea of reforming uh, the prison system, there's a lot of ideas. Uh, some say that uh, prisons should be abolished altogether. Others see prisons as becoming more like rehabilitation centers. So can you walk us through uh, some of those ideas and the people that you talk to uh, in your book? Yeah. Um, well, first about the, the abolition movement. Uh, that's probably the fastest growing subset of the anti-prison campaign that's underway in the country. Um, There's the abolitionists deserve a a great deal of credit for pinpointing problems and injustices in the system. The problem with abolition is well, twofold in my view. One of them is it's 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 probably a fantasy to imagine that we're going to completely abolish prisons. There's no no great popular demand for that. And the other and even if you could abolish prisons altogether, it's that's would be the work of generations. And in the meantime, there are nearly two million people who are incarcerated, and you can't just write them off as cannon fodder for the revolution. So. Uh, it's, the heroes of my book, I guess, are people who, who are working within the system to try and make it better. They include educators who try to teach college classes in prisons, um, corrections officials, like some of the ones in Connecticut, for example, who've tried to make more humane and uh, pr- programming available, or more humane conditions and better programming available for people who are incarcerated. Um, people who, there are a number of religious organizations that deserve credit. There's, there are, there's a lot going on in the system, but it's mostly at the incremental level, not revolutionary. Mm. 
And that's because of, of the cost. Uh, when we think about even uh, reducing, uh, I guess, the ratio between a, a correctional officer and um, the people uh, that uh, they are uh, watching over, uh, those that are incarcerated, Bill? It's not just the cost. It's there's a for the last 200 years there's been a great tension in this country between a, an instinct to punish and an, and a professed faith in rehabilitation and second chances. And the, at different points in our history, one or the other has gained the upper hand. Um, I. I, I I think it's something that we, the, the reason that we have such overall poor prison conditions is a punitive streak that probably came over with the Puritans. But when we're talking about the Connecticut example, uh, for instance, uh, you looked at what the former Department of Correction Commissioner Scott Semple and former Governor Malloy uh, tried to institute uh, rehabilitation programs within particular prisons that uh, focused on uh, younger uh, people who were incarcerated, the idea that you know, they will be going uh, back uh, out into their communities and how to help them lead productive lives. But that's something that um, has not been able to be sustained, in my understanding, or at least there are budget cuts. So it's not an expansion of the program. It's more piecemeal. Yeah, the Marshall Project, we sent a reporter along in 2015 on a trip that um, Scott Semple and Governor Malloy himself went on, along with corrections officials from a number of other states. And they went to Germany and looked at how they do things there, which is much more of a kind of normal more like a college campus environment. The idea being that you want people who are going to be, 95% of people who are in prison are gonna be released at some point and you want them to not just fall off a cliff when they leave, they should be prepared to re, 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 live, rejoin uh, normal society. But um, while I was working on the book, I had an interview with Angel Quiros, who's the Scott Semple's successor, who was supportive of the of the the work that Semple did, which was consisted of setting up special units for uh, in, for young inmates ages eighteen to twenty five, using older inmates as mentors, uh, called the True Unit. It's in Cheshire, a maximum security prison, and. And Kiros said, yes, we're going to support that and the comparable women's program that Semple also left behind. But we, we can't afford to scale it because I'm under pressure to cut millions of dollars from, a, from the prison budget over the next couple of years. And when uh, the Marshall Project uh, sent reporters to uh, Scandinavian countries, can you uh, explain to our listeners, you know, how those uh, facilities are set up, where there is such an, uh, an emphasis on rehabilitation, even in, in the terms of how the public views prison, Bill. You mean in Scandinavia? Yes. Yeah, the, the Scandinavians and the Germans have a whole different philosophy of prison. It starts with the premise that yes, you, you break society's rules, you're going to be punished. Uh, but the punishment is you lose your freedom for some period of time, and that's it. But, in, but while you're incarcerated, uh, 
you're, you retain all of your other rights, the right to safety, the right to an education, the right to vote, which is an important way of keeping a bond with the, the larger civilization we live in. Um, the other big difference, aside from just trying to re sustain a sense of normalcy, is the role of the staff. In Germany, if you're going to be a corrections officer, you're going to spend two years at a college level training facility, including lessons in human rights law and psychology. And your role, once, you're back, once you've got a job inside a, a corrections facility, is to engage the, the prisoners to diagnose what it was that led them to crime in the first place and to address those issues. And in, in the United States, if you're going to be a corrections officer, you're going to get, in most places, a few weeks of training heavy on crowd control and self-defense. And, and, and you're actively discouraged from having relationships with the inmates. And this uh, approach, it doesn't waver from someone who might be incarcerated that um, that did a, a minor crime, per se, versus someone who might be seen as more dangerous, Bill? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, how do they treat dangerous offenders? Um, they, they have a... They, they, in, in Norway and Germany and Sweden, they um, try to defuse the danger. They, their, their solution is not to lock people up in solitary confinement, although they will if somebody is an active danger. But the solution is to, because the corrections officers have relationships with the inmates, they can tell when somebody's about to have some sort of a mental break or whether there's a conflict brewing and they can defuse it at the outset, which uh, the officials I've talked to in Connecticut and other states seem to think is, is a model that can work here too, but it runs against a lot of opposition from the Corrections Officers Union among others. Um, when you mentioned the opposition from correction officers unions, what are what are some of the points that they make? Well, their role is to protect jobs, and they don't. Uh, but the the argument that they make is mostly that it's it's dangerous. You need punitive solitary confinement to uh, to keep every keep the other inmates and the staff safe, even though punitive solitary confinement has been shown to do horrible things to your mental health. Again, you're hearing Bill Keller here where we live. He's written the new book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, before we go to a break, Bill, when we think about duplicating uh, some of the, the models in, in Scandinavian countries uh, to uh, the prisons in, in our country, you know, what are some of the barriers? Well, the two big ones. One, one is an obvious one of an attitude that there's a kind of myth that if you're in, if you're spending money on prisoners and giving them an education, that that's a, a, some sort of a gift, whereas in fact, it's an investment. The other thing is cost. Um, 
the, the European prisons have much higher staffing ratios in order to retain those relationships with the inmates. Uh, and we haven't been willing to spend that kind of money. When we think about the, the people that are incarcerated in our country, a majority of them are black and brown uh, individuals. And when we think about, you know, the way these institutions have come up uh, in our history and how our country is still re uh, wrestling with the legacy of racism, how does that factor into the conversations that we have in this country about uh, prisons, Bill? I think that it's no surprise to that the fact that so that nearly 40% of the incarcerated people in America are black men uh, generates a reaction of indifference by, by a lot of Americans. It's a, it sounds harsh to say so, but there's uh, quite a bit of public opinion research that shows that the, the fact that the, these, these are mostly black or so disproportionately black inmates uh, means we, we don't care as much. Again, you're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Bill Keller, you can read an excerpt of his new book, What's Prison For?, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Bill and hear from State Senator Gary Winfield about Connecticut's efforts to reform its criminal justice system. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about prison reform and how states are reexamining the purpose of incarceration. Eventually, people are released. Are they set up to succeed on the outside? It's a question my guest Bill Keller explores in his new book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Keller is founding editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization that covers the U.S. criminal justice system, and Connecticut's efforts to rehabilitate some of the incarcerated under the former Malloy administration was included in Keller's book. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is State Senator Gary Winfield, who represents New Haven and West Haven, and he's co-chair of the legislature's Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Winfield's been a leader in helping to reshape conversations around criminal justice and juvenile justice in our state. Senator Winfield, welcome back to the show. 
Good morning. Glad to be back. You spent a lot of time uh, wrestling with this question in your capacity as a state lawmaker, thinking about what's prison for and how um, these institutions uh, impact uh, not only the individual, but their families, the community. I wonder if you can respond to what Bill Keller has shared with us so far. Yeah, what what Bill's been sharing is very much in the same vein of the things that I've talked about during the course of my uh, tenure as a, as a legislator. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out really quickly that Bill said a, a few minutes ago was when he was talking about the attitude of the of, of people in general about uh, prisons and, and who's in prison and how we see um, spending money on education as a gift. That tells you something about the real attitude we have. If we're spending money on these people who are in prison um, on education, which we should have gotten uh, in our public schools, Something's failing before they get to prison, and so um, part of the part of what I see is the problem is exactly what Bill is saying. You have a large percentage of people of color in the prisons who are not uh, the people that the general public will look at and see themselves in, and don't also recognize things that should be apparent. If you get if you need to get that education in prison, you're not getting it in school. So we don't talk about the things that lead us to prison, and then when you get to pr- the prisons. Uh, we don't have a focus on it. Even when you think about the, some of the work that Connecticut has done, like Bill and you and you yourself mentioned the True Unit, um, we instituted the True Unit. But the True Unit sits inside a prison that largely functions the way that it functioned before. And so there is a kind of uh, schizophrenic relationship even going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about some of the programs within uh, prisons, uh, as you mentioned, in-prison education or job training, therapy for uh, drug and, and mental health, uh, Senator Winfield, again, uh, these are um, programs that some um, that are incarcerated have been able uh, to get at particular prisons, but it's not yeah. something that is uh, has been able to, been, to be scaled up. And so part of that is changing the public's view of what incarceration does and, and what it can, um, you know, how can, it can be changed to help people okay. when they are released. Yes, absolutely. And part of that is um, an effort to do so. If we're being honest, uh, we institute these programs, it's piecemeal. And it's and, and there isn't really a real effort on the part of uh, legislators to create these programs as programs that deal with the whole of the institution. Uh, so you think about the true unit, if you, got, if you have 50 people inside of a prison and they're getting this program, what you actually do is you say, for you 50, you have something different. We can go out to the public and say, look, we went to Germany and we learned some things and we implemented this and we will do that. What we will not do is transform that prison in the way that uh, the prisons we saw were. Uh, and we're fine with that. Because I'll tell you, I, I said over the, the corrections budget, I'm not just the chair of judiciary, I said over the corrections budget on appropriations. Uh, and I'm wrestling all the time to try to bring the appropriate money for programs and the prisons. And the conversation I am not having is about how do we create a Connecticut where what we do in a true unit is what we do. Mm. Uh, Bill Keller, I'm wondering if you can respond, because uh, you've also, uh, in your research for the book and your colleagues at the Marshall Project, uh, looked at other programs in other states, states that might surprise some of our listeners uh, who are used to uh, progressive Connecticut, that have also tried uh, these programs uh, to help uh, those who are incarcerated. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, this idea of, of a therapeutic versus punitive setting. 
Yeah, the other states that I focus a bit on in the book, although they're not the only ones doing it, are North Dakota, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and the senator's right that in most of these places, it, it's an experimental unit in, inside a system that is fundamentally unchanged. Uh, and it's fundamentally unchanged because, in large part because of the cost. But also, I mean, one thing that the senator sort of alluded to is people are coming into prison having been unsuccessful at getting a decent education. Um, the prison system serves as a kind of catchment for all of the poisons in society, bad lack of education, lack of housing, um, mental health issues, addiction issues. And you can't really reform the criminal justice system as a whole until you address these issues in society that flow into the system. So it's not just a matter of budgets. It's, it's a matter of the sort of tsunami of problems that, are, that wash into our prison system. Mm. Uh, you also talked about uh, the state of California. They were able to reduce the number of people incarcerated, I believe, because of a, a court order. Uh, but there have been uh, some, uh, I guess, uh, things that have happened related to the communities now because there hasn't been investment on the on the community level, Bill. Can you talk about that? Yeah, California has been under, for, for years now, under a Supreme Court order that said that their overcrowding was a violation of the constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment. And they've succeeded in reducing their prison population, state prison population, by 25%. Nobody else has come close to doing that. But they didn't make other alternative arrangements for those people. So an awful lot of them ended up in county jails, which are even more poorly equipped to, to do rehabilitation than state prisons. And a lot of them ended up homeless uh, in homeless encampments. Um, so you can, they can declare victory, but it was sort of a hollow victory. Uh, Senator Winfield, I'm wondering if you can respond uh, to what California saw. And then even when we think about some of the conversations Connecticut has had in the last couple of years related uh, to juveniles. Um, and on one side, people want to see um, stricter uh, penalties for uh, a young person who, who may commit a crime. But again, it's not looking at the long-term view of what happens to these young people who may end up in the adult system. Yeah, I, what I want <laughs> is a safer system for everyone. And I, and I don't just mean a prison system, I mean it's just a system of life, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I start off asking my question, but the question of how do we get there? Not in the immediate, I see a crime, how do I mm -hmm. think about that crime? And I think too much of the time we think about there was a crime, uh, we need to do something about the crime and not, as you suggest, about mm -hmm. if we make a choice, a policy choice in, the, in this scenario, we make a choice. What are the outcomes of that choice? Because if we think about what the outcomes of the choice are, what we know is if we send young people into the prisons, they're more likely to go back into those prisons. They're more likely to spend a lifetime of being in prison. So the question is, how did they get to the prison in the first place, both young and old folks? And if we figure out how they got there, then we should be dealing with those things while we are dealing with the aftermath of a crime. What we want to do is deal with the aftermath of a crime absent dealing with what the, the causes are 
And that is a dangerous thing that, that leads you to a less safe community. And so here's the conundrum. As a politician, what do you do? Do you go to the public and say, we have to spend money over here where you don't want to spend money when we're having a conversation about taxes? Do you say we have to give money to these communities that are not your community because we have not historically done that or the way that we've done it historically is not equitable? Those are hard conversations to have. And so what we tend to do is we tend to say, what you want to hear is us tell you that we're going to be tougher on crime. And we do that. We saw that in the 1990s. Clearly, it did not work. And yet, again, here we are in 2022 having a very similar conversation and trying to do the same thing. Mm. Uh, I was thinking back to efforts in our state to end uh, the use of solitary confinement in uh, our uh, prisons, uh, Senator Winfield. And I remember mm-hmm. when you were uh, part of this uh, discussion, of course, uh, talking about the impact not only on those who are incarcerated, but the people who work within prisons, uh, uh, You know right. what it does to the correctional officers uh, who are also uh, interacting with uh, the incarcerated on a daily basis and, and how to fix a system when uh, you have these high stresses and this is the result, right, that this, they're told that this must be used, this particular uh, segregation uh, must be uh, given to a person because of uh, their behavior, but how that heightens uh, the, the whole environment for everyone. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. Yeah, so when, when we had, we've been having that conversation for a very long time, in 2017, uh, we kind of ramped it up. We brought a uh, mock solitary cell to the uh, state capital, so legislators could get a taste of what it might be like. We weren't suggesting that it was exactly what we do here. Um, and what I saw was uh, legislators who had the ability to open that cell, uh, walk out at any moment, who couldn't spend more than five minutes there. And I start off with that because I want people to understand you have policymakers who are not uh, understanding what it is to be in this environment. They don't have family members in this environment. Uh, They won't put themselves in this environment. That's an issue. So I spent four four plus hours in this environment. What I could tell you is that immediately it had a huge impact on me and I had the ability to open the door. So what we know from research is that you're more likely to operate in a way that is aggressive, that is violent. If you're in that as a person who is incarcerated, if you have to oversee those folks, you have to in order for you to continue to keep people in those conditions. You have to make it okay in your brain in some way. That's problematic because it's not okay. And so it has an effect both on the person who's inside and the person who is the person who is overseeing those people inside. It makes that prison itself less safe. That is not what we want to do. We've known this for a very long time, and yet we refuse to operate as if we do. In our prison system, whether it be solitary, restrictive housing, just the prison system, the things we do go against everything we know is the better way of doing this. And at some point we have to face the fact that what we have been doing, while historically it has been what we're doing, is not the right way to conduct prisons. There's a reason we have the true unit. There's a reason we face the public and went on 60 Minutes and all of that stuff, because we want to show people we're doing better, but it's not real. At some point we have to make it real. Mm. 
I bring up that example, and thank you, Senator Winfield, uh, for uh, giving us that context again. It's been a couple years since we've talked about it here on this show. Uh, but uh, Bill Keller, you had profiled and, and wrote about what was happening in Oregon and how uh, the, the COs, <coughs> the correctional officers, how they were trained so that um, you know they were also experiencing high rates of diabetes, uh, heart failure, hypertension. And you quoted someone that said the U.S. prisons had failed us, the people who live in them, the people who work in them, and their families and communities. You know, how, what was the response uh, when the COs were trained uh, to um, work differently, uh, to, to maybe have more of that role that you see in one of the Scandinavian or German prisons versus uh, uh, the punitive aspect? Yeah, the Oregon case is a really interesting one. They worked with a group called AMEND, in, which is based at the University of California, San Francisco. And they actually s- declared the main purpose of the corrections system reform being addressed, not at the prisoners, but at the staff to try and, by working through the staff, treating it as, as, as a sort of a wellness issue, a public health issue, they would that, that would permeate the, the, the culture of the, of the place, it's too early to have definitive, you know, scientific data showing how it works. But from talking to both the number of corrections officials uh, and advocates and uh, academics in Oregon, it's, there's a, a pretty good sense that it, that where it was, where they concentrated the effort, which was mainly in the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, with the biggest of, of the prisons. Uh, it, it made a demonstrable effect on the culture of the prison. But in the more outlying prisons, uh, which uh, Oregon, like a lot of states, has put tends to situate prisons in remote rural areas. In some of those areas, they, they just don't have the resources. It's even something as simple as getting into an Alcoholics Anonymous program, which are important in prisons. You can, you can have a six-month wait. We've spent some time talking about uh, the environment within U.S. prisons as well as uh, the factors within our society uh, that lead some to be incarcerated at a much higher rate uh, than others. But I'm also wondering when we think about um, the question, what's prison for, which is the title of Bill Keller's book, one of my guests, uh, you know, are we are we ever going to get to the point where the majority of the public truly believe a person can change and deserves another chance because we know uh, and you know, this has been shown in, in, in data as well as just hearing from people who've been incarcerated, they may finish uh, their sentence and they may go back to their communities, but that prison record continues to follow them. And do people really believe that someone deserves a second chance? And how does that play into the, the, how our society views prisons? I'll start with you, Senator Winfield. I think it's a it's a question that if you if you ask a dozen people you'll probably give four or five different answers. Um, it, it plays heavily into uh, the way that we operate uh, in in the policy sphere. When I'm trying to do the reforms that I've worked on, I'm always being hit with look at the crime that this person committed, and and that crime is almost as if it exists absent the fact that a human being was involved with it. Human beings change over time. That's just what we do. Uh, we do not remain the person that we were. Five, I'm not the person I was five years ago. Uh, not, almost none of us are. Uh, and so 
it, it, it seems to me to be strange that we will recognize that human beings change over time, and yet someone who's committed a crime all of a sudden has these characteristics that are immutable. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I think as a policymaker, part of my job is not just to get the success, right? Part of my job is to lay the groundwork, the foundation to tell the public the truth, whether they agree with me or not, so that we can have a real conversation. We know that people change. Anyone who's had a child knows that people change. Uh, We just have to actually accept it and then operate as if we know that. Before I I hear from Bill, I want to take a quick call. Eliza is calling in from Middletown. Eliza, what did you want to share? Hi, good morning. I just want to um, let listeners know that what the senator is saying is absolutely real. I have never, in fact, heard a politician in Connecticut give this big a blast of reality about what goes on. Uh, I've been inside. um, I'm actually paranoid to say which prison because... Um, the, they're so punitive. I might not get back in if I criticize. Um, but uh, as an educator, and I know a lot about the true unit, and it's window dressing, and it depends largely on the free labor of older uh, prisoners to run the program. Um, I just can't thank you enough. I hope people listen, um, and you know, thanks for the show. Thank you, Eliza. I want to take one more call. Valentine is calling in from Hartford. What do you want to share, Valentine? Well, I'm a volunteer with the Alternatives to Violence Project, so I conduct workshops on dealing with conflict other than by being violent. And I've been on the the true unit. Um, Many of our facilitators are in that unit, and I co-facilitate workshops with my incarcerated co-facilitators, and some of them are among the people I respect most in the world. They shouldn't be locked up. But I attended a a conference of Alternatives to Violence Project International in Ireland, and we heard a very high-ranking prison official talk to us. Uh, ABP, it's called, is very big in Ireland. They work in a lot of prisons. And he said, if someone has been with us for 10 years and they're not ready to be returned to the community, we feel that we have failed. And I just wish that attitude could be brought back to American prisons, as the senator and as the author have been saying. Thank you, Valentine. We're actually short on time, but I appreciate uh, you calling in uh, to share that. Uh, Bill Keller, uh, Keller, I wanted to go back to you, uh, maybe to respond to um, what our listeners have shared about some of these programs in our state, um, and you know the, the the wider question of you know how uh, we as a society can change um, our 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 perceptions of what prison is for. Yeah, one of the reviewers of my book described me as surprisingly optimistic. And I want to make clear that I'm not that optimistic about sweeping change in the system. Um, Change, at least at this point, what we're getting is some pilot programs, some incremental changes. Um, But that's important, even if it's only on a small scale, and it should be on a larger scale. I mean, one of the numbers that haunts me uh, in in the book is that 600,000 people are let out of prisons every year. And it's our choice whether we want to send them home brutalized, alienated, stigmatized, and lacking any employable skills, 
uh, or whether we want to give them a, ch a chance to be decent citizens and decent neighbors. That's a good, um, good point to end on. Uh, Bill Keller, again, is author of the new book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. An excerpt is on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Thank you, Bill, for coming on. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Lucy. I appreciate being on the show. You're listening to Where We Live. State Senator Gary Winfield will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to talk about a new report that looks at the Connecticut incarcerated population and the communities that are most impacted. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than half of Connecticut's incarcerated population are from six Connecticut cities. That's according to a new report from the Prison Policy Initiative based in Massachusetts. The report's aim with this data is to show the scope of mass incarceration in certain communities, particularly those with large black and Latino populations. Joining us now on Zoom with more is Mike Wessler with the Prison Policy Initiative. Mike, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me. So give us a, uh, some brief uh, background on um, you know, how this got started, uh, this particular report that was released. Yeah, so as the senator and Bill were talking about earlier, in order to solve the problem of mass incarceration, we need to really uh, address the underlying issues that are there, um, issues related to poverty, issues related to housing, issues related to mental health. But for too long, we've not known exactly uh, where to invest those resources. We could make some guesses um, based on uh, things related to uh, county of conviction for people who are incarcerated and where crime is reported to figure out where to make investments to address um, crime and mass incarceration in our communities. But we didn't know exactly where people in prison truly came from. Um, thanks to a reform that was really championed by Senator Winfield, though, in 2021 to end what's known as prison gerrymandering, we have, for the first time ever, a really crystal clear picture and really granular picture of where people in prisons actually call home. And that's because prison gerrymandering is a problem that uh, is created by the Census Bureau, uh, and it's the Census Bureau counts incarcerated people as residents of their prison cell rather than at their home address. And this is despite a whole host of uh, factors. You know, people, when they leave prison, they're most likely to return to their home communities. They still consider their home communities home. Uh, that's where they have their social ties and connections. Um, and when the this reform was passed in 2021, the redistricting commission in Connecticut had to uh, adjust the census data to better reflect the true population of the state and as when it comes to incarcerated people. We took that data, um, kind of mashed it up a little bit to really uh, figure out where people in uh, Connecticut prisons call home. As you mentioned, six Connecticut cities, Hartford, New, uh, New Britain, Waterbury, New Haven, Bridgeport, and New London, account for about 17% of the state's population, but they account for about 50% of the people who are behind bars. Uh, I think that's a, a troubling number, and I think it's one that should, should raise a lot of eyebrows because... Uh, it should tell us that something's going on in these communities. There is some uh, public policy failings that are happening in these communities that are uh, causing dramatically higher rates of people to end up behind bars. Mm. 
Uh, let's look at Hartford as one of the examples in the report when we think about the number of people uh, that are incarcerated that come from Hartford. But you, the, the report drills down even deeper when you think about particular neighborhoods uh, and, and the people that are impacted. Can you tell us more, Mike? Yeah, so um, the state as a whole has an imprisonment rate of about 288 uh, people per 100,000 residents. That's high by any other standard globally. No other countries, as was discussed in previous segments, they don't incarcerate people um, at that level. Uh, but when you look at the city level, it becomes even more troubling. Harvard locks people up at a rate of 1,065 people per 100,000 residents. That means over 1% of Hartford's population is behind bars. And that fundamentally changes and weakens the fabric of those communities. Uh, you know, and that means that there's less economic support for families. There's less emotional support. Uh, it, it really weakens uh, Hartford and other communities that, that have similarly high incarceration levels. But as you mentioned, we can, this data allows us to drive even deeper. And I think that's what makes this data so powerful. Not only does it show the scale of um, this problem, but it also shows the massive disparities that are within communities. Mm -hmm. um, inside Hartford, the Upper Albany neighborhood, they, were, uh, they send people to prison at a rate of about 1,900 per 100,000 residents. That's almost 2% of their population. That's almost 10 times higher than um, the state as a whole something's going on in Upper Albany that uh, there's there needs to be more investment to address some of the challenges that are sending people to prison. But when you look just a few blocks away to the West End neighborhood, 491 people per 100,000. So it's about half mm -hmm. the uh, incarceration rate of the city as a whole. Um, so it shows that there, there are dramatic disparities and where you grow up and where you live um, can set you on a dramatically different path. Mm -hmm. And it's only a matter of blocks that can uh, result in these changes. Uh, State Senator Gary Winfield is still with us. Uh, Senator Winfield, I'm wondering if you can respond uh, to what uh, Mike has shared and, you know, how this data can be used uh, from uh, your uh, perspective as a lawmaker. I'm happy that we have this data. Um, some of the stuff, you know, if you're involved in this, you, you know it, but you don't necessarily have hard data to demonstrate. So I'm, I'm glad we have the data. Uh, I, I just think that people have to come to understand what this data is actually telling us. It is it is policy that has gotten us into this situation. And when we are thinking about coming out of this situation, we think it's uh, personal choice alone that gets us out of this situation. That just doesn't make sense. Policy uh, tells us whether or not there are resources in your, in your area, around your area. It tells us whether there's public transportation to the jobs that you don't have in the community you're in. It tells us whether or not uh, your neighborhood is a compacted neighborhood. Uh, and, and when you see the number of people that we are seeing going in and out of our prisons, uh, there is a follow-on effect from it. It's not just the people who've been in there, it's the community. And that's how you get to the point where we have community level trauma and other things. So what I would say is this, we have uh, communities that are over-policed and under-resourced, and we have to flip that. The solution when we have crime in, in, in any neighborhood, uh, with all due respect, and I think police do a good job largely, but all due respect is not to put more police, whether you call it broken windows or community policing, because it's more police in the community. The solution is to deal with the causes, and until we deal with that, reports like this will always pertain. Mm. 
And when you say deal with the causes, more investment in housing, education, jobs, health care, Senator Winfield? All, all, all of the above. Uh, we, we've had many conversations, particularly around the issue of housing that go nowhere, uh, moving, whether it be different zoning or moving people to areas of higher opportunity or whatever it is. And then people turn around and they say, but why do we have the crimes? It's because you refuse to change. You're going to continue to have the things that you have. Equity, I said this in a different conversation, equity requires revenue. What I mean by that is if you want to deal with these situations to get us to a, 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 a place of equity, you're going to have to spend money to do the things, to undo the things that we've done by policy choices. Again, you've been hearing State Senator Gary Winfield, uh, who is uh, co-chair of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, thank you so much for your time on the show. I also want to thank Mike Wessler with the Prison Policy Initiative based out of Massachusetts. We'll be sure to link to that report uh, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Mike, thank you for your time on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. 